0: They are going to try everything they can to put false messaging into the black community.
1: Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with one of the nation's iconic civil rights activists. He is a Baptist minister. He's the founder of the National Action Network. He's the host of Politics Nation on MSNBC and he is the organizer of the Get Off Our Next Commitment March, which last week attracted thousands of activists to the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., to protest police brutality. Welcome to the show, Reverend Ed. Thank you so much for joining me. I have been an admirer of your work uh, as an advocate and a civil rights lawyer myself. I you know, consider you to be one of the premier uh, activists fighting for this A thing we call justice. And I know when I look back over your career, uh, you've had over four decades uh, of fighting on the front lines and and leading protest movements uh, for social justice. So my first question to you is, what's different today uh, when we look at the protest movements that have erupted following uh, the murder of George Floyd, and, and you look back over to what you were doing, say in the 80s and the 90s, what's what's different about these? I think
0: uh, there are several things different. One, I think uh, that we are in a phase where, for the first time, we're seeing a large part of the white population in this country more sensitive to the issues of systemic racism than we've seen in the past. In the past, we always had a fraction of white Americans. But this is the first time that we've seen, even according to polls midsummer, the majority of whites saying, yes, there's a problem. Uh, I think that that has also been demonstrated by uh, going to marches and rallies now. I've gone to some marches where there has been more whites than blacks. And mm-hmm. uh, that is different. And the reason it's different is not that we need uh, whites to uh, in any way give up. Credibility or or to uh, uh, certify what we're doing. But it means they're going into their families and their communities and saying to their mamas and daddies who may have been in denial, this is a problem. And as you move that culture, uh, it will translate in an area that I've admired you in in criminal justice. Those are the people that's going to be sitting on a jury. What a lot of people don't understand is that. there are three policemen indicted for the uh, death of George Floyd. Well, one of the reasons that I've said to the people that work with us in National Action Network or that comes to our rallies or marches that we don't need to act in certain ways is there are going to be 12 people in that box that will decide uh-huh. guilt or not. And we do not need them to feel that we're reckless or crazy or violent. Cause they may assign that to George Floyd. Cause you're a great, uh, a, a lawyer. The defense lawyers for those cops are gonna have to. Uh, want to say you see how they're burning down the town. That's what George Floyd was like. That's why we couldn't contain him no other way. So we, by having the white population more sensitized, it makes potential jurors say, "Well, no, that's not how they are." My kid is in that movement. My nephew. My grandson. And we've never had that before. The other thing that we have differently is social media and technology. So in the 80s and 90s, when we were doing everything from uh, Bensonhurst, uh, HBO just did a thing on the Yusef Hawkins case that I was involved in, or the Diallo case in the 90s, we didn't have a video. So it was our trying to say to the world that this happened. Imagine with no video, you'd have only had a fraction of people believe that a cop would really put his knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. But you had the video now, and I think that the, the the fact that we have social media that you can put these things out and people can see it for themselves has made a huge difference.
1: Speaking of George Floyd's uh, murder that we all witnessed and and that horrific, you know, eight. Uh, minute video where we saw that officers, ex-officers, knee on his neck. You have preached so many of the eulogies of African-American men that have been killed by police, including George Floyd's. And I want to play a portion of, of that fiery sermon you gave at his funeral and, and then get uh, your response to it on the other side. Oh, if you would have had any idea
0: that all of us would react, you'd have took your knee off his neck. If you had any idea that everybody from those in the third world to those in Hollywood would show up in Houston and Minneapolis and in Fayetteville, North Carolina, you'd have took your knee off his neck. If you had any idea that preachers, white and black, was going to line up in a pandemic when we're told to stay inside. And we come out and march in the streets at the risk of our health. You'd have took your knee off his
1: neck. I want to ask you, uh, Reverend Al, that metaphor that you're preaching about in terms of you would have took your knee off his neck. Who was that really directed to?
0: It was directed at a system uh, that uh, in many ways, I think, makes it possible for a policeman to feel he could get away with that. Uh, and uh, that was the uh, eulogy at the third funeral I did, the first funeral I did using the same type of metaphor that the reason why we all could relate to that is because we've all had the experience of the system putting their knee on our neck. Uh, and, and you know, I grew up a boy preacher, so I learned as a kid out of preaching before I could read and write well. So I'm an extemporaneous speaker. I might write one or two things down as notes, but I never speak from a manuscript. And uh, what happened was when I was doing the eulogy, it hit me, why did this resonate so with me and many black Americans? It's cause the knee on the neck we understood cause if it's at the job, if it's at the bank trying to get a loan, if it's, we always had something on us holding us down. And that's what George Floyd represented. That's where that metaphor came from. You have had your knee on our neck and then asked us why we didn't stand up and be more than we were. We would have, if you'd taken your knee off our neck, we could have been a lot more than we ended up being.
1: Very powerful metaphor, Reverend Al. And, and I wanna ask you, how do you think that metaphor played against what we saw at the RNC convention when uh, Trump trotted out several African-American validators who attempted to send a message that this country, you know, doesn't have a racist past, it's not racist, and that these validators can vouch for the fact that Donald Trump is not a racist. And and particularly someone like Alice Johnson, who is so moving and so compelling in her presentation. Do you think that that they did, uh, you know, their jobs, intended jobs, Uh, By the RNC to convince people that this is a non racist president?
0: No, I don't, because the uh, validators cannot validate what is invalid. And I think, you know, I know Ms. Johnson, I've met her, she's done my MSNBC show, Lovely Lady. But you have to deal with the facts. The facts are Donald Trump has not done anything but try to, in, in many ways, offend and insult the Black community. He's defending Confederate statues saying it's part of our heritage. And the only reason Confederates have a statue is they fought to overthrow the government to keep us in slavery. He has called uh, our countries in Africa and Haiti as whole country. He has no plan for closing the unemployment gap that is still higher for blacks than whites. He takes credit for low black employment, which he, got, he inherited from Obama. But then how do you close the gap? You can't convince people of that, but What was interesting is several days, not even a week, after the validators went to the RNC, you saw it demonstrated where Donald Trump defended a white, young, 17-year-old who crossed state lines, went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, walked up and down the street with an AR-15 after the curfew and killed two people. And he looked for a way to say, well, you know, that he was in danger. They were after him. Whereas the young Black man, Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back, and we all saw him shot seven times in the back, his attorney general said, well, you know, he was committing a felony and had a weapon, which nobody saw any weapon. And what felony? So you've already concluded he was committing a felony before the investigation, but you said nothing about the police officer. It's those kinds of things that I don't care how many of the validators he gets, people are not stupid.
1: And you knew Donald Trump before he became Donald Trump, the president. Uh, And he, you know, there are photographs of you uh, with Donald Trump again before he became the president. He actually has this tweet where he says Al Sharpton uh, loves Trump. So what happened in, in terms of your history with him? And we know more recently, he's called you a con artist. He's, he's you know, made derogatory comments about you. Uh, tell us about the Trump pre-presidency that, that you were photographed with.
0: You know, in the, in the mid-80s, Donald Trump had the contract, the exclusive contract, uh, to uh, uh, the, the convention hall, uh, convention center in Atlantic City. And uh, I had my skepticism about him. Uh, because he had had a discrimination uh, uh, suit that he had to settle with the federal government uh, about his real estate
1: property. Uh, right.
0: He knew that he wanted to get boxing in the convention center. They got Don King to bring us together. Don King, the promoter. I was also relational with Mike Tyson, who came out of Brooklyn, as I did, out of Brownsville, Brooklyn. So uh, he would go to fights. He would be friendly with me. All of this ended like I'm not a bad guy. And uh, I'm still all right. You know, it's fine. He came to my National Action Network convention. Uh, Then he came out against the Central Park Five and I marched on him. And uh, he was very upset. How could Al March and me, you know, we go to fights together and all that. We didn't really go to fights together. We'd be at Brinkside because I was there as a guest to King and Tyson. He was there because he was a conventional. I was not his guest. But anyway, we met and I told him, I think it was racist. I think these boys are innocent. They were convicted wrongly. He says, I disagree. It is not based on race. So we kind of left each other at a we'll see. In the uh, uh, 90s, he came down to the National Action Network convention. Uh, one, one of the pictures you showed, he came a night that I honored James Brown. Another time when uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was one of my mentors, uh, opened up the uh, Wall Street Project, and I was the speaker there in 97. He had Donald Trump there. That's where I'm leaning over talking to Jesse. And uh, Trump was there. And he was a Democrat. He gave money to Democratic candidates, including the Clintons. everybody. But then he comes out with birtherism, and he starts saying that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. And I felt this was absolutely racist. This was absolutely us against them. And by then I started my MSNBC show, and I was pounding on him every night. He had a lawyer, ironically, named Michael Cohen, who went to school with a friend of mine. And they called and said, Why is Al calling Donald a racist? He knows him. They had the problem with Central Park, but can't they talk? He arranged. I went over to Trump Towns and met with him. I said, first of all, I did not call you a racist yet, but I said, what you're saying is racist. And I explained to him this us against them stuff is pure race politics, and I won't stop. I won't have it. You're absolutely wrong. And I went back on my show that night, and I talked about it. And from then on, we, he just went further and further in this race drum thing. His friends said, well, you know, he's playing to that crowd. Whether he's playing to that crowd or not, you cannot be comfortable saying racist things if you're not a racist yourself. I don't care what crowd I'm playing to. I don't want to play inside of me something that I'm not. And that's what happened. It started with Central Park and it, and it, it ripped it when, with this of and this is way before he ran for president. He
1: called you after he was elected. There's some report that he called you. What, what was that conversation like? That he was- He called me about a month
0: after, uh, uh, you're right. He called me about a month after the election. And uh, uh, he had seen me on Morning Joe that morning. And he commented on what I said. And he invited me, he was president-elect and It was like December, early December. He invited me down to mar lago I told him, no, I'm not doing the photo op thing. because again. I didn't care if he won or lost. I felt that the birtherism thing and what he did during the campaign was racist, so I would not do the photo op. He has called me since he's been in the White House. We talked when the pandemic started. But I'm not going to be, I'm the type of person, I'm not impressed with having access to the White House. I'm impressed in getting something done out of the White House, and I do not think Donald Trump intends to do anything for all Americans. He intends to play for certain crimes.
1: So, so Reverend, I have to ask you, how did this man who you just said gave a lot of money to Democratic candidates, came to your National Action Network conventions, uh, you know, was involved in some kind of business activity with Reverend Jesse Jackson? How does he go from being a supporter of democratic causes to being the commander in chief of, of, you know, racist dog whistles? Uh, and this kind of race baiting politics that we've seen played out over the last three and a half years?
0: It's a great question. I think the only uh, way you can answer it is one of two things. One, these were deep seated feelings he always had that he bailed. Uh, And two, that he doesn't mean anything at all. He just does whatever works for him at the moment. So he wasn't sincere when he would deal with us then and he's not sincere when he's dealing with them now. He's just for Donald Trump either one is just as bad or it could be a reasonable combination of both.
1: And maybe that explains, Reverend Al, why to this day he continues to say that he has been the best president for African-Americans since Abraham Lincoln. He says that over and over again. He said it in his RNC uh, acceptance speech, and he cites, you know, his job numbers for African-Americans. He cites the first step of criminal justice reform legislation, and then he cites these opportunity zones, but, but can you explain, having been in this fight for social justice for 40 years, why is that statement so blatantly false? It
0: is blatantly false because, first of all, the unemployment numbers went down nationwide. Uh, in fact, President Barack Obama, who inherited an economy that was going through the, uh, the toilet, those numbers started going down under Obama, and Obama created more jobs per month than Trump has done. So as employment went down, Black unemployment went down. He didn't do that. That was the cost that he inherited. And he has never, in quoting that, said, but Black unemployment is still higher than white unemployment. And he's never talked about how he reconciles that. The Opportunity Zones has helped as many of his business friends that go in these zones and create businesses and get the money as it has anyone else. And in terms of his saying about the, uh, uh, the Second Chance Act, a lot of that was engineered by Cory Booker and Hakeem Jeffries and others to get it through the Congress. And it was a next step after Obama's commutation plan. When Obama was in, Obama commuted more sentences than the last 11 presidents. Put the figures up of the people that Trump has let out of jail and put the figures up of what Obama let out of jail and you'd see how absurd that is. And I'm saying Obama, not only because I had access to Obama, as I did Clinton, but that was just the president before him. So to say that he was the best president since Lincoln, you don't even have to go through the list of four or five of before him. Just the one right before him let more people out, commuted more sentences, set up policies about voting, set up policies around uh, policing with consent decrees. For him to say that, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sick that he has done more for Blacks. Done what? Everything that he claims I've just discussed, and he can't come with anything else. This is the press administration that I can't even tell you the Black that you go to in the West Wing to talk to. The last one and the only one he had of any visibility was Amorosa, who calls him a racist herself now.
1: The rhetoric coming out of, of the White House and Trump it doesn't just stop at Donald Trump. We, we are hearing it now from so many of his cabinet members, including Bill Barr, who just did an interview this week on CNN, where he suggested that the narrative that African-American men are killed disproportionately at higher rates than than non-African Americans is a false narrative. How do we push back on on that kind of false information, uh, particularly around police brutality in this moment where we're having this reckoning around race, to have the Attorney General of the United States suggest, and not even suggest, but blatantly state that African-American men are not disproportionately killed uh, by police and that there is no systemic racism in policing in America.
0: Yeah, you have to push back with the facts, and the facts show in the number of studies that we are disproportionately shot and killed. The interesting thing about that CNN interview is he said that there's not systemic racism it may appear that way according to the statistics, but it's not race. So you're admitting that we are disproportionately killed and you're admitting that it is the blacks that are disproportionate. but it's not race. Well, then what is it, Mr. Barr? Uh, is it just by some uh, uh, force of nature? I mean, it makes no sense that I will concede the facts, but I'm not going to say that the facts are what the facts are. It's clearly by race. And I think that the only way you can push back on that is you have to vote and you have to vote them out.
1: And I'm glad you brought up voting because obviously I want to talk with you about this election. One of the most critical elections of our lifetime happening in just under 60 days or so. All the national polls, Reverend Al, have Joe Biden up, some as, as high as by 10 points. Uh, we see, though, in some of the swing states, and it's so important because we know elections aren't national, they happen in these swing states in terms of the president, that they're, they're starting to, to tighten. Why do you think in the midst of this mishandling of the pandemic, all the, the racial hate that's being spewed by Donald Trump, we don't see a larger gap between Biden and Trump, particularly in some of those swing states?
0: I think that uh, this law and order facade that he's trying to build is some of what is uh, happening to tighten the poles, which is why I've said to people that we cannot play into his hand. I grew up in the North, raised in Brooklyn, New York, but I joined the King movement when I was young. So I believe in nonviolence. But even if people don't believe in nonviolence, they cannot tactically do this without knowing that anytime you break a window, you're helping Donald Trump because that's what he wants to project. Any study shows 98% of the protests have been nonviolent, but they take that 2% to make everyone in white America feel like you're under threat. These people are going to burn the country down. And it also hurts the trials of the family, which I discussed with you earlier. And I think that that whole drumbeat of us against them, they're going to come and take your suburbs, you're going to lose the value on your homes, is as race-based as we've ever seen it. But fear is real, and we've got to not play into his trying to energize and, and ignite white fear.
1: In terms of pushing back and, and making sure that we have the maximum voter turnout, particularly in those swing states, what do you think uh, you know, Kamala Harris's nomination, historic nomination by Joe Biden to the Democratic ticket, how will that nomination and her being on the ticket uh, energize Black voters in places like Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Detroit? Uh, you know, those areas where we know that the vote was so close, but, you know, Trump was able to win in those key swing states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. Is Kamala Harris that that hidden factor that's going to cause us, you think, to win back those swing states?
0: I think Kamala Harris definitely would be a hidden factor. When you look at the fact that uh, Donald Trump won Michigan by less than 12,000 votes, uh, when you look at uh, maybe 22,000 in Wisconsin, which now has had uh, this uh, uh case there, uh, the Blake case. I think Kamala Harris and the Time are going to drive that vote out, which is why they've gone into trying to suppress the vote about uh, playing games with the post office and others because they know they barely won last time. They lost the popular vote, and they only squeezed through the uh, electoral college with minimal votes. And if you look at the energy, people have been marching three months. We had a march on Washington. Tens of thousands came out. And and when I looked out there during a pandemic, it felt like 100 degrees. And you saw as far as you could see, tens of thousands of people, not one incident, not one arrest. Then I said the energy is there as long as people can get the right, uh, can use and, and exercise their right to vote. The energy is
1: there. I believe that that's true, Reverend Al, but I've been looking at some reports, and there's a report that that came out uh, in a poll that said Black voters, particularly those under 30, are not enthusiastic about the Democratic ticket, including the fact that Kamala Harris is on the ticket, particularly when they looked at Black males under 30. And they said some of them are, are inclined to believe Trump isn't a racist and that they believe that their lives were made better in the last three and a half years under Donald Trump. How do we reach those voters uh, to put, make sure that they fall into you know that Democratic vote column?
0: I think that you've got to deal with it by straight up addressing the issue uh, that has been propagandized to them, that they'll be given a false image. And the thing I've said to black men, which have gotten their attention, because I do a syndicate radio show every day, is you all have to look at the fact that black men, George Floyd was a black man. Under Trump, Trump has not opened his mouth and said one thing about justice for Florida. Jacob in uh, Blake in, in uh, uh, Wisconsin, black men, who do you think suffers more under the Trump justice system than black men? So at one hand, he's going to meet with Kanye and let one or two people out of jail, but he's going to let people shoot you in the back or put a knee on their neck. And all of them back up and say Yeah, I didn't think about it like that. You've got to hit it right on the head. I think that you've got to fight fire with fire. There's nothing subtle about Donald Trump, and you can't fight him a subtle way.
1: And to that point, Russian interference. Lots of reports out this week, Rev, that the Russians are at it again. Perhaps they never stop. But again, a part of their target is African-American voters and trying to sow seeds of dissent uh, between those voters and to suggest that the Biden-Harris Uh, you know, administration will be bad for black folks. Again, what are you doing in the National Action Network (laughs) to let people know that this is all propaganda and a ploy and don't fall for the okie-go?
0: Yeah, we're out there very, very clearly. We form what we call the National Action Network Voter Brigade. We're out there now all over social media and and out in the community as much as you can under COVID-19, letting people know that not only are they coming with this, that you need to be aware of it. I do it on my radio show every day. Look for the propaganda. They used it last time they created sites acting like they were with Black Lives Matter to attack Hillary. All of that and more is coming. They are going to distort things. You have to counter program now. Don't wait. I had a, a Zoom call with the leaders of the major civil rights organizations just last night, uh, Urban League, the Legal Defense Fund and all. Don't wait. Let's get out ahead and tell people what's coming. They are going to try everything they can to put false messaging into the black community, particularly among black men. And you've got to remind them that Donald Trump went to Kenosha and met with law enforcement. Biden went and met with the Blake family. Donald Trump would even call the Blake family, said the only way I'll talk is if their lawyers are not on the phone. But he's going to have the attorney general sitting there, who has already prejudiced his own investigation saying that Blake was committing a felony. Black men need to be talked to and warned directly. Black people need to be warned directly. It's coming. They will have a social media campaign that will make you think Joe Biden was a Confederate while they're the ones defending the Confederate statue.
1: Just one last question before I let you go, Reverend We got 60 days, less than 60 days. What is the most critical thing that you think you know, we should be doing as a a community, as African-American community, to make sure that we're not stunned like we were, you know, after the 2016 election where, you know, we we just couldn't believe that Donald Trump uh, had won the White House. Now we know it's possible and we know that there is a pathway to victory for uh, Trump for a second term. So what is the most critical thing you think we can all do uh, so that we are playing our parts uh, in this election in November?
0: We need to prepare right now, plan how we're going to vote, and get everyone in our household, in our social circle, whether it's fraternity, sorority, church, to vote. We need to act as though we are 15 points behind on the polls. Don't sit by and relax. Talk to everybody and make sure that everybody understands we cannot lose this. If he gets control of that Supreme Court, There's no telling what will happen to everything that we gained in the 60s. And everybody has got to be deputized to deal with everything and everybody. And you've got 60 days, but remember those that fought for us that had no days. We've got days that our grandparents didn't have. Use every day to everyone you touch and speak to. If they can early vote, have you voted yet? If they don't. Are you going to vote? Have we made sure that your registration's up to date? Everyone must take this seriously, like their life depends on it, cause it might.
1: Well, we gotta leave it there Reverend Al. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you for your, your years of activism. Thank you for your voice at this critical time. It could not be more important. Uh, and we know that you're gonna be out there leading the charge as you have uh, done uh, so uh, expertly in the past. And, and we look forward to uh, seeing you on the, the, you know, the battleground fighting this fight for us and, and being our, our leader as we uh, try to reclaim the White House in November and not just the White House, but the Senate too, which is also critical.
0: Absolutely important. important. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you. I was glad to do it.
1: Wow. Thanks again to Reverend Al Sharpton for joining me today. And I'm so glad he mentioned the Supreme Court. We don't talk a lot about that in in the democratic circles that I run in, but it's so critically important that everyone understands that if Trump is reelected, as Reverend Al said, he'll have an opportunity probably to appoint not only one, but possibly two or three Supreme Court justices, and they serve for life. They can never be removed. They can't be fired. They get to serve until they decide to retire or until they actually die. And what's so critical about the Supreme Court is Congress can pass as many laws as it chooses. The president can sign those laws, but it is the Supreme Court that interprets those laws. And abortion rights, gun control rights, voting rights, civil rights, affirmative action, things that we all care about, including health care, are all going to at some point or another end up on the doorsteps of the supreme court so who sits on that court is critically important so if you care about you know social justice causes if you care about health care for all if you care about controlling uh guns in terms of having sensible gun laws you have to care about the Supreme Court and who gets to make those appointments to the Supreme Court. So just another point of reference as to why this election in November is so critically important. So again, I I wanna thank all of you for joining me this morning. You can continue to be a part of the conversation by following me at Areva Martin on all social media platforms. Uh, And before I get out, my words to live by. You know, there's this great saying, progress, not perfection. We can never ever lose sight of this basic principle. We also can't lose sight of the fact that we have an opportunity to address systemic racism inequities in our health, educational and criminal justice systems, and to change the direction of this country come this November. It won't be perfect, but we can make progress. And thanks to leaders like Reverend Al Sharpton and the millions of activists who have been on the front lines fighting for progress for decades. See, you don't have to travel to Washington DC or even join a protest march in your hometown to make your voice heard and to be a part of the change that is sweeping this country. But if you do choose to join a protest or if you are even just a casual observer of the movement, Note that as Reverend Al stated, despite what Trump repeatedly says about looters and mobs and riots, 98% of all of the protests over the last four months have been peaceful protests. It's just a very small percentage that have not been and that have led to some of the violence that gets played over on this loop again and again and again. It's that small percentage that is amplified by the media and by certain segments of the media all in an effort to make you think it's so much bigger and so much larger than it actually is. And you also need to remember it's Donald Trump that is encouraging white supremacists to show up at protests and engage in violence. And it is Donald Trump who is defending the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse while refusing to even acknowledge the tragedy that happened to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, or Jacob Blake. We can't fall for Trump's fake news and propaganda about protests, about race, about the fight for justice, about this November election. Don't let his decisive rhetoric deter or discourage you from participating in the November election and from voting. As Reverend Al said, we all have to be so incredibly diligent about our vote this time around. We've got to figure out where our polling place is. We have to figure out if we're gonna vote by mail. We have to get that ballot. We have to return it as soon as we get it. We have to know where those drop boxes are in our communities. We have to know where we go to vote if we want to vote in person. And then we've got to talk to our neighbors, our relatives, our coworkers, those in our uh, immediate circles and even those beyond, those that we know online, our virtual friends. We've got to make sure that everyone knows the importance of registering to vote and to actually getting out and voting in this election. Because it's not just the White House, it's the Senate, it's the Congress, it's state uh, elections as well. There's state houses at play, there are governorships at play. There is so much riding on this election. And you don't wanna sit this one out. You don't wanna be on the sidelines. And I can't tell you that your vote will make this country perfect, but what I can tell you is your vote will make a difference. I'm out y'all. Be safe. Don't forget to wear your mask and don't forget we are all in this together. Thanks for joining me for this episode of a special report. Please take a moment to share, subscribe, and rate this podcast. I always want to hear your thoughts. You can share your comments with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn by following at Areva Martin. Thanks and be safe out there.